0: Now we will read from God's holy and inerrant word. This is the reading for today's message, which is from Genesis 11 and 12. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar.
1: Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You that You are good. That Your steadfast love endures forever. I pray for these gifts, these offerings to You, Lord. I pray um, that it will bear fruit um, for Your kingdom and for Your church, Lord. And I pray that as we look at Your Word this morning, uh, that You will show us Your Gospel, show us Your grace, show us Your steadfast love, uh, Lord, and, and transform our hearts. With your words, I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, uh, Children, age three to six, are now um, dismissed to Children's Church. Um, For those of you all, we're going to Children's Church. It's a great privilege to be here this morning. I'm very sad that uh, the rest of my family could not uh, be here. Um, uh, but my, uh, uh, my family is a little bit under the weather. Um, it's also, you know, monsooning outside too, as well. So, so I, I appreciate all of y'all making it out this morning. Uh, uh, the text this morning, uh, is Genesis 11 and 12, and basically here we're going to compare, uh, uh, the call of Abram, Genesis 12, uh, to the story of Babel in Genesis 11. And, uh, speaking of my family, when, uh, this was probably about three, four years ago now. My, my children are now eight and six, William and Lizzie. And this, was, this was way back when Lizzie was first starting to walk. Uh, and uh, one day we were, we were kind of in that moment of, of watching my daughter walk and get excited and, and get the, the phones out to take some pictures, you know, to send to the grandparents and all that sort of thing. And uh, getting excited, you know, and she was barely kind of walking. And we heard this kind of rumbling noise, um, you know, uh, as, as we could tell, my son was sprinting hard down the hallway and he just comes through, uh, into our living room where my daughter's walking and full out tackles her hard down. And, uh, you know, there's this moment of panic of what is about to happen. There's also a little bit, a moment of, of pride. Oh, that was a pretty good tackle, son. Um, <laughs> But then the panic quickly returns, and I'm freaking out because he has basically just all out tackled um, our little precious daughter. And, you know, wipe away the tears. William, go to your room right now. And so then, uh, uh, you know, after kind of making sure Lizzie is fine and she is, I go back uh, to William's room, and he's sitting on his bed, um, obviously seeming confused, upset. And so I sit down and ask William, William, why, why did you come in and tackle Lizzie? And he looks at me with his big eyes and in utter seriousness says, Dad, I am an evil robot hunter. <laughs> and Lizzie is an evil robot, and evil robots must be taken down. <laughs> and I'm guessing that for whatever reason, uh, the way my daughter was kind of walking stiffly um, had made William think she was an evil robot. Um, and, and so then I'd explain to William, William. You're not an evil robot hunter. You're a little boy. And your purpose is not to take robots down. Your purpose is to care for your little sister, to care about her, um, to care about her well being. And you just did the opposite of that by tackling her in the den. And and so I ask you these two questions this morning to kind of frame our comparison uh, of these two passages. What is your identity? What is your identity? You know, where do you find your worth? What, what, how do you describe yourself? Or, or what are your goals? And then, what is your purpose for living? What is your purpose? What is the meaning of life? You know, why do you get up in the morning? How do you think about yourself, first of all, your identity? And then secondly, what is your purpose? What is the meaning? What gets you up in the morning? Um, and Genesis 11 and 12, I think, uh, show a great contrast here. The two ways two ways we can answer these questions, and I would say the two ways um, that we in the world answer these questions. So first, Genesis 11, the story of Babel. In Genesis 11, um, the people of Babel, Babel gather together, and they decide in verse 4, to come, let us, build for ourselves a, uh, let's, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of Of the whole earth. And here we see a couple of things. Their purpose is to make a name for themselves, for ourselves. They'd make a lofty plan to build a tower that reaches up to God. And we see this throughout the world. You build great wonders, especially in the ancient world. You build these great wonders, and even actually in our cities today, you build these great wonders up to the heavens to show how great and powerful you are. You know, why were the pyramids, why were all these things built? They were built so that they could reach God. And they were built so that other people would know they are powerful. They have a great name. And so we need to be wary. The other thing we see is that they see reaching God as something uh, which to aspire to. They all wanted to become like God. They all said we need to do things so that we can be like God. They see their purpose. Their purpose is making a name for themselves. Their purpose is becoming like God. And, and, and they, so they, their assumptions they're making here, these, these Babylonites, they're assuming that making a name for themselves will eliminate their fears from other people, from people that might conquer them, that it will protect them and keep them safe. And you see also that their identity is in what they do, in their performance, in their talents, in their accomplishments. And if they perform and then their name is made great, then happiness, then comfort, then security. And so I ask you, are you like this? Where do you find your worth? Where, what makes you feel good about yourself? What drives you? Is it your performance? What you hope to accomplish in life? Is this your identity? Is it how much attention you get from the opposite sex? How much attention you get from your coworkers? How how they how they see you? Is it in finding the one? Is it in being more moral or holy than anyone else? Is it being the richest? Having the most wealth? Is it being the coolest? Is it being the smartest? Is it being the most theological? Is it having the best grades? being the most athletic having the cleanest house having the best yard having the best kids or the best family are these the things that if we get these things then our name will be great and then happiness and and, and here's the deal this is what is the problem with some of these great things like having a great family You know, being smart, having money, all these great good gifts from God. What's the problem when we put our identity, when it is our entire worth? Like Babel. The problem is these identities are always self-consumed. They are all about us. Even if you think they're not, like having the best kids, it's still really about you. And you see this if you see any dads out on the athletic fields with their kids. Is it really about their kids being better at soccer or basketball? Or is it really about about them looking good? And them being able to live, you know, through their kids' accomplishments. And the worst thing about putting our identity in all these different things is that they can change at any moment. They make for a very unstable identity. Friends. Spouses can hurt you, can betray you, can even leave you. Your looks are always changing. With every year, I get more aware of this. You know, our performance, we can fail, and we often do. You know, yesterday at the World Cup, uh, I was watching the penalty kicks between Brazil um, and Chile. And just thinking about all the pressure that those men were under. And some of them failed. And if they put their identity in soccer, in football, how must they now feel? You know, we secretly know how unstable our performance, our looks, our relationships are. And so guess what happens to us? We become obsessed with these things. We become obsessed with them. And creating an identity in them to give us worth. And so what are you spending all your time thinking about? What are you spending all your time worrying about? Um, there's a great movie that was made, I guess now almost 30 years ago now, uh, called Chariots of Fire, about a group of men, uh, Olympians, and, and who were racing. And one of the main characters is talking about his, his, uh, his sprint, his 100-meter 100 100 race coming up. And he says this, he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? But will I? And is that how y'all feel? Is that how you feel? That looking at your children, looking at your singleness, are are you thinking about These are the things that are going to justify my existence, my work, whether I find the one, you know, whether I make good grades, you know, whether I'm the best or the most favorite sibling. Are these the things that you put your worth in, that you look to justify your existence? And the problem is, if we do that, you will ultimately be miserable because it's always changing, you know, as a people pleaser, people's opinions are always changing, And so if I want everyone to like me, I have to obsess about that at all times. Because people's opinions could change. And what this means then, if we live in the world of Babel, if we live in this world, putting our identity in our performance, in ourselves, what it means is we have to be perfect. And I often, you know, people are always talking to me, I'm a college minister and and the college campus is perfect. And everybody thinks about the college campus in this way of it's the crazy, wild, you know, uh, place and all this stuff. Um, But if we're honest, who are the legalists? Who are the fundamentalists in our culture? It's not, you know, the Bible beaters. It's American culture itself. Because at Rhodes College, where I'm going, you think people are trying to justify their existence with grades, with performance, with their looks? with whether they'll find the one. Um, I know every time I go into a grocery store, I know as I'm I'm checking out, if I look at the magazines, I'm going to be unhappy. Because I'm going to see how I'm not as good looking as the people on the magazines. I'm going to see that there's a lot of things I need to buy that I don't have. I'm going to do all these things. And yet, does this bring happiness, this kind of thought of always self-improving, always performing? Always having to justify our existence. No, in fact, this is the kind of thing that leads you know, to self-destructive behavior. It leads to perfectionism. It leads to workaholism. It leads to moralism. You know, most religions are all about being better, doing more, self-improving, having more discipline. All dealing with the guilt and shame that we feel because we're not perfect. And so life just becomes an obsession with justifying our existence, finding connection, but at the end of the day, always feeling shame that we're not adding up, that we haven't aspired to be like God, that we have not made a great name for ourselves. You know, a good question when thinking about this is, you know, to think about uh, in your life, how you think you'll be happy? What are your fantasies of once blank happens? Once I accomplish blank, then happiness. Um, I'm I'm always talking to college students who think uh, that uh, you know that basically they will never be happy that they will not have arrived until they find their spouse, until they find the one. And uh, I always let my wife tell them this. And my wife always tells uh, the, them these college students very clearly that people who think marriage will fulfill all their needs are people that are not married. <laughs> because my wife, being married to me, is is well knows that marriage does not bring about complete happiness, complete fulfillment. Now you just move on to something else. Then it's about your career or your kids or your family, or your grandkids, and continually justifying your existence. And so you see, aspiring to make a name for yourself like Babel does here leads only to a lack of security and a ton of fear. It definitely doesn't provide satisfaction. And so the Babel way, at the end of the day, is legalistic, is moralistic. A culture that produces shame and guilt when we fail, or self-righteousness when we feel like we've succeeded but here's the good news there's a second way there's a second way the gospel way God knowing the folly of Babel he disperses them and then he decides to choose a people that will contrast Babel with a second way to live and I want to read this passage again because it's been a little bit uh if you want to turn to Genesis 12 This is the call of Abram. 1-3 and then 7-20. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the whole country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? What did you say? She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So back to 1-3 through three before we get to that little 7-20 through 20 passage. Here in chapter 12, God provides a new way. God chooses to bless Abram. Who is Abram? You know, uh, thinking about this, and a lot of times, uh, for those of y'all who have grown up in the church and have been Christians for a while, we think of Abraham, and he's this great man and all these things. And so sometimes we have to kind of like read this passage anew. So who is Abram, who's later going to become Abraham? Does God choose who Babel would have chosen to start a people? You know, who Babel would have chosen most of the ancient world, and I think us today, We'd have chosen a mighty man, a man of renown, a man of a large family, a man who worshipped him and loved him exclusively. But God doesn't choose that kind of man. God chooses Abram, who has no children, whose wife is barren and past childbearing age. Abram would be considered very weak by ancient standards. Uh, most, most scholars think he wasn't even the firstborn of a family. He would not be someone to father a nation. In the ancient world, uh, a man, as we were talking about where we put our identity, a man would put his identity in not only descendants, but also his tribe and his land, which brought him security and status. And so what does God do here? God tells Abram to leave his land, to leave his family, and go to a land God will give him later, but now is inhabited by dangerous strangers. God strips Abram of any possible strength and anything that Abram might desire to make his name in. And then God promises this stripped, weak, childless man. He promises him a land. He promises him a nation. In other words, descendants. He promises to bless Abram and protect him. And He promises to make his name great. Interesting. What was Babel trying to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves. And here's God coming to Abram and saying, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to do it. So God gives Abram an identity. He will not have to work or strive after one. God says, your identity is in me. is in what I say about you. And the fact that you are mine. And this new identity that I've given you, that I've blessed you, comes with a new purpose. Not to make a name for yourself, but a purpose to be a blessing to others. And specifically, a blessing to the nations. God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A blessing to the nations. God blesses Abram and gives him an identity. So now he's freed up. Because if he has a secure identity that's stable and that does not change, then he's actually freed up now to fulfill the purpose God wants for him. To be a blessing. In other words, God loves Abram. So that Abram will love others. To strengthen his, his, his young faith, God shows him his entire land in verse 7 and personally appears to him to reaffirm his promise. In verse 8, Abram responds to this wonderful gift, this wonderful grace as he sees it. The amazing promises and the presence of God the only way he can, by worshiping him. Abram was not a great man. And Abram realizes this. But God had pursued him. God chose Abram and made him great. And so Abram knows the only way to respond to this is to worship this god and if you are a christian today we are children of abraham we are his descendants and we receive the same identity and the same purpose that was given to abram way back in genesis 12 because you see the gospel the gospel says god is saying i have made your name great I have made you, I have united you to Jesus. And so now when I see you, I see my son, who is perfect. who actually lived up to all those things that we want to live up to. I've made your name great. I will bless you, and I will give you great blessings. I will protect you, so you can feel completely secure in me. So we do not have to compete with others, or worry about making our names great. God says, you don't have to earn my love. I offer it to you freely. And more than Abram, we have multiple stories all throughout the Old and New Testament of God's blessing to His people over and over and over again. And ultimately, we see how blessed we are in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. Therefore, our identity. It's not in the stuff we do. Our identity can be in Christ. In His perfect love that never changes. God promised Abraham protection. Jesus gives us eternal life. God promised Abram land. Jesus promises us a new heavens and a new earth for eternity. God promised Abram a great name. Jesus gives us His perfect righteousness and his worth and he gets rid of and eliminates our shame and guilt and he promises to do great things through us to grow the kingdom through us and that we will be glorified god promised to be with abraham jesus gives us his holy spirit god promises abram a people and jesus gives us his body Church to live with us. What an identity. What an identity. What an amazing privilege that we have. What a worth. And so, as Christians, we should no longer be struggling after identity. The gospel has fulfilled all that. So, Raoul, rather than chasing after an identity to make our name great, we are free to now dwell, maybe even obsess over being a blessing to others, over loving others. However, like the rest of us, when real life hits, Abram, in verses uh, 10 through 20, Abram quickly forgets this identity, just as we do. He quickly forgets the promises of God and decides to return to the way of Babel, the way he grew up. So he so he leaves the land God has given him for Egypt when circumstances get hard. And rather than believing God's promise of protection, Abram fears for his life. And so he does what any manly man would do. He makes his wife protect him, do all the work for him, and save his own life. He's a coward. And then he finds himself in a bind when Pharaoh takes her as his wife And gives him a bunch of riches for it. You don't see here Abram saying, no, don't give me all this money and riches and wealth for my wife. No, he takes it. He likes all the gifts. And he sits in silence as his wife has to live with the king, with another man, and lie about who she really is. Abram's no great man. But despite... Abram's complete lack of faith and selfishness. God's made a promise. And God's promised to bless this weak man. And so he sends plagues and graciously sets Sarah out of this situation. You see, Abram has forgotten his new identity. He had forgotten that God promised to protect and bless him. And he'd forgotten his purpose we see here that Adam, I mean, that Abram, in his sin, is not being a blessing to anyone. And that it really is what sin is. Sin is not being a blessing. He has put his wife at risk, so much for being a blessing to others. He has deceived Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh receives God's curses for committing adultery and ignorance. So much for Abram being a blessing to the nations. And, and here's the deal. I am the same. I'm just like Abram. I continue over and over again to return to Babel and forget the gospel, forget my identity, forget my purpose, forget the promises of God to me and all of my eternal blessings in Christ. I still want my name to be great. You know, I often struggle with wanting RUF to grow, and it can be real Spirits say, I'm excited about my RUF group growing. But is it because I want God to be glorified? You know, or is it because I want my name to be great? Because I want people to talk about me and say good things about me. Because even in ministry, i found the way of Babel is very, very strong in my heart. You know, I can already see myself wanting my family to be the best. Wanting people to envy us. I see myself losing my temper at my children, William and Lizzie, when they embarrass me. When they lower my name in public. Because I still follow the ways of Babel. And want my name to be great. And I see myself destroying those around me. With my Babel-like expectations. You know, it's funny. When I look at my life. The more I've pursued my own happiness. The more I promote my own agenda to make myself great. The more I obsess about my performance more people around me get hurt and I become a blessing to nobody yet even when I'm weakest when like Abram I have horribly failed in my purpose God's promises the gospel are still true still reminding me of my new and permanent identity in Christ his never-changing love for me where I fail God does not where I'm false God stays true God sees my weakness, my failures, and he says, and he sees your failures. And he says to to all of us over and over, I stay true to my promises even when you fail. And I choose people in their weakness to be a blessing to, to others. My grace works through weakness, through those who know they need me. The gospel's not for the powerful or the moral or the self-sufficient. It's for the weak and the needy. God's grace is for messy people who know that they could never put their identity in themselves. And so they put it in Jesus. God is saying over and over again, my gospel is what gives you an identity. My gospel is also what gives you freedom to actually pursue how you were made to be, to be a blessing and to love others. David Foster Wallace, and I'm going to end with this quote, is, uh, you know, if you look up kind of the best uh, graduation speeches and stuff, this, uh, this speech by David Foster Wallace is often one um, that's remarked upon. I just want to read a little snippet uh, of what he has to say to these graduating seniors in college. And I think he puts up the contrast um, without him knowing it, uh, the same contrast we've been talking about here this morning between Babel and between um, the Gospel. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. However, It's the freedom all to be lords of our tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of our, our own worlds, of our own creation. But of course, there's a different kind of freedom. And the kind is most precious you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. And being able to truly care about other people. And to sacrifice for them over and over. In myriad, petty, unsexy ways. Every day. And I think he puts out the two choices. Are we going to be like Babel? And at the end of the day, lords of our, our own kingdoms. Of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, as he says. Alone. Or are we going to be part of the gospel way? A way that puts our identity in something stable that never changes. In God's steadfast love. So that we can be a blessing to others. In myriad unsexy ways. Every day. Which will we choose? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray that. Um, I just thank you. For the identity and the purpose you've given us. The one we were created for. And I pray that um, for all of us in here, I pray that you will help us not forget. That you will let us remember. And Lord, when we do forget, when we do fail, as we often do, Lord, I pray that you will quickly remind us that you do not fail. And that your promises and your steadfast love are sure. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.